The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that results from listening to this podcast. Scream Kings podcast. I'm Max George. And I'm Nathaniel Darkish. The podcast of nights. A hundred delights. <laughs> All right. Well, well, we are not the only ones uh, in this uh, virtual podcasting space. We also have a very special guest, Laurel K. Hamilton. Hi, Max. Hi, Nathaniel. I am very, very happy to be here uh, on the podcast of nights. A hundred delights. I'm sorry. Everyone will know why I'm giggling later. <laughs> I, I tried to channel my inner Carney there. I, I hope that that came through. <laughs> I, I think you did a, a splendid job. I find oh, it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Yes. I am Laura Hamilton. I am uh, best known for the Anita Blake uh, Vampire Hunter series. I also have the Mary Gentry series. Uh, we're here to talk about Anita because I have a new book out uh, in that series, Smolder. And it is, uh, it is number 29 in the series, which even to me, uh, even to me is impressive. Um, I have nine books out in the Meredith Gentry series. We'll be going back to that series uh, next. And I have one book out in the Zaniel Havelock series, which is a brand new world where I get to visit with angels and demons and explore that in more depth. All right. Well, and and you know, didn't she didn't mention it, but you know, also multiple number one New York Times bestsellers, been on the bestseller list a gazillion times, and <laughs> just you know, is uh, basically has the writing career that I eventually hope to have. So, you know, just 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 crushing it out there in the literary world. Well, you know, I wish you I wish you luck. I can tell you one of the best things I did for myself was. Um, plan for success instead of planning for failure. Um, what do I mean by that? My first series, actually, that I wrote, my very first book was called Nightseer, which was Elves, Dwarves, and Dragons. Very uh, Tolkien meets Robert E. Howard. And I, it was supposed to be a four-book series. The first book, as many first books don't, didn't sell well enough. And so suddenly the career I thought I had was stalled or crushed. And I went through my short stories. I had one featuring Anita Blake. Her name wasn't even Anita Blake. It was Anita Black at that time. And I thought, well, this is fun. It hadn't sold, but I thought this is fun. I could do a a book here. I could do a world here. And I started researching um, other people's series. And and I thought, if I wrote straight mystery, would I be would I be interested for a whole series? And I thought, no. So I added my love of horror and folklore and mythology to the real world. Uh, You know, we wake up tomorrow and everything that goes bump in the night is real and then everybody knows about it. So I thought, that's fascinating. And then I decided to mix every genre I ever wanted to play in all in one series. And here I am this far into my career and having a blast still. So. Plan for what you want to be doing 10, 20 years from now and do that. 
Well, that is uh, fantastic advice. Thank you. Well, I, I, I just have to say, I really, I really like the advice, Nathaniel. Wow, Nathaniel and I both have kids around the same age, and I think that's great advice, not only for you know college students, but little kids. You know, plan for the future you want to have. Yes, I, and that actually goes beyond writing for me. I, I do that. I try to do that everywhere that I can in my life. Um, I can't control everything around me, but I can plan for where I want to be. Sure. Yeah. Love that. Okay. Well, before we dive uh, into the world of Anita Blake and some more uh, detail, uh, I, I do want to just kind of hear about you as a horror fan. Okay. And as we were uh, setting up for the show, you mentioned that you didn't necessarily have a particular favorite horror, but you just kind of have just a general love of horror. So do you just want to kind of t- talk about kind of how you got into horror and, and, and like why you love it? And You know, I don't remember a time I didn't love horror. Uh, at age five, I saw on the TV a, a commercial for they were going to do the late creature feature with uh, the original Frankenstein with Boris Karloff. And I was five and I wanted to see it. I seriously wanted to see it. And I was making myself obnoxious to my <laughs> grandmother uh, who raised me. My mother was still alive at that time, but she was working. So I, I pestered my grandmother all day. And she finally, in exasperation, said that I could watch it if I stayed up by myself and only had one light on. <laughs> she put you through the rigor. <laughs> oh, you have no idea. She, 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 was, she, she thought I would chicken out. <laughs> and I and and I didn't. Um, oh, I stayed. Awesome. I stayed on the couch with my little light on, and I lasted <laughs> all the way to the scene where uh, Igor is torturing the monster. And that was too much. For some reason, the fire was too much. So I turned off the light, rushed through the bl- pitch black house, dived into bed high enough over so the monster under the bed couldn't get me, and and that was. I have no idea why I love horror, but as far back as I can remember, like everybody else is playing games like we're on a cliff and you have the the bad guys chasing you. For me, I, I cut out pictures of rattlesnakes and put down below the chairs so that if you <laughs> fell, you, it wasn't enough to fall to my death. I had to fall into a pit of rattlesnakes. <laughs> I I always love that extra edge, pushing it to something even scarier, and I just seem to have come this way as far back <laughs> as I can remember. That's awesome. Other than just having this this you know lifelong love of horror, what scares you the most? Then I'd have had a different answer before I researched things for the Anita Blake series, but what real people do to other real people. Uh, for true crime, for, especially for the serial killer research I've done. That, that scares me more than any fiction I've ever, I've ever read or ever written. Because um, you, some research, you can't undo it. You can't unknow that people really do this to each other. And no matter how horrible you're writing on screen or in a book, whatever, somebody has done something like that to real people. I, at one point, uh, gave all my serial killer research books, clippings, everything, uh, to my husband and said, I know enough to write this now. Please take this away and somewhere I can't see it. When I ask for it back, give it to me, but 
for now, I don't need to research anymore. I've researched as much as I need to write it. And that was, that's my job. I'm not a real policeman. I just write about somebody who has a badge. But so I wrote enough to be able to write it fictionally. I didn't need to know the worst out there every time. Yeah, I, I think that's very poignant. Nathaniel and I have talked quite a bit on the podcast about how, you know, we you step into a world of fantasy when you watch a horror film, right? You, you kind of come into the movie with preconceived notions about what you're going to see. But you do yeah. true crime investigation and research, and you, you kind of are exposed to what you want to be fantasy, but unfortunately is not. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty gnarly out there. I've been listening to a new podcast about uh, <clears throat> kind of the deep state and Bundyville and all of these kind of mm. uh, kind of real life events, and it really mm -hmm. kind of gets to you sometimes that there are people out there capable of doing what we watch in horror films. Uh, yeah, and I think if you don't research it, I started researching this stuff before there were so many true crime podcasts and shows out. So it wasn't as readily available back, uh, back in the uh, 80s and early 90s as it is now. And so I literally was finding out things that, that wasn't out there. I had to look for it. I talked to real police officers that were kind enough to share their insights. And, uh, and I have to say that the people who actually solve these crimes, catch these killers. I, I'm so glad I just write about it on paper. It, it, it is a job that would just eat your soul. Yeah. I mean, sometimes even just reading about it eats your soul, so I can't even imagine. Especially if you, if you have the opportunity to see crime photos, that'll stay with you. Yeah. You, you can't unsee a lot of those. I, I one time was uh, looking up, I think it was Ed Gein on Wikipedia, and I saw things that oh, I yikes. couldn't unsee. Yeah, Nathaniel, that's that's a dark one. Well, and used to you couldn't they didn't there was no access to that for for ordinary people. You you couldn't see pictures from Ed Gain or any of the others. They just weren't out there and the internet has just opened up Pandora's box for that kind of thing for everybody. Yeah, I I didn't I didn't want to see his his lampshades that he made and uh sure saw yep. those. Um I had the opportunity in college, uh, one of my professors had the notes from the doctors from uh, the Holocaust. I don't know who compiled it, he had a, a, a copy of it. And I saw it and I said, I've never, I didn't know this was, this was a book, I didn't know anybody put it together. And uh, I was interested and he says, I'll let you take it and read it. He says, but I'll warn you, you don't want to read it. And I borrowed it, and he was absolutely right. I brought it back. I stopped because um, the lampshades what made me think of it. We can stop there if you. We can stop there if you want, because uh, uh, the they did that. They did that and worse. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, that that is that is something that is just yeah. Real people. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be villains. It, it doesn't have to be. It can be people not that different from everybody else. And that is the scariest thing of all. Absolutely. Well, let's pivot to a more uh, happy, <laughs> happy uh, topic. Yeah? How's that for a seamless transition? Um, 
Let's talk about the Anita Blake series um, and, and the new book. Um, so, for, for starters, you've been, you know, playing in this particular world for, what, 30 years? And yes. The first book came out in 93. So yes. That is, you know, uh, that's, that's a long time to be working with, with, you know, one character, kind of one world, and... and playing with one series so like what is what keep like what keeps bringing you back to this character to this world to the story time and time again um well like i said earlier i gave myself enough toys that i learned something new about anita and her world and the other characters in it the ongoing cast every time i sat down to write i gave myself so many toys to play with that I am never bored. So they have actually become, I call them my imaginary friends. And I say imaginary friends because I used to say they were my friends because I had um, written them for so long. But I had people at signings say to me, uh, ask for characters' um, phone numbers and want to know where the real guilty pleasures, the you know, strip club, where the vampires and the shapeshifters uh, get on stage. They wanted to know where the real clubs were and they wanted the real numbers of my characters. So I came up with the saying uh, that is, if, if these characters were real and they were really my friends, they would not want me to give out their phone number to strangers and then the people will go, oh, that's true. I, I have, I'm blessed with being able to create a world and characters that are that real, that real to other people, to my fans. Hmm. And that's a type of magic. So, so, so when we're looking at, at yeah, kind of these elements, I guess, how did you kind of go about making, like, these characters, these cre- like, like all of these different creatures? You know, you have vampires, you have different kinds of shapeshifters, you have, you know, lots and lots of things from folklore and, and you know, kind of horror tropes and, and, and the like. How did you make each of those kind of your own? Well, first of all, I am a biologist. Uh, I call myself a non-practicing biologist because I've never earned my living with it, as many people with biology degrees have not. Um, I am one of those as well. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great degree, but it's hard to get a job. Um, Indeed. And so I think my science background helps me. For my shapeshifters, I start off with the real animal. I start off with... um, uh, like if I'm researching the wear lions, I get as much as I can on the science. I get, and I love, I'm very, very visual. So I will get calendars or those big picture books with the, uh, with whatever animal I am putting together for as a shapeshifter. And I will, so I have a visual. What color are their eyes? What shape? Uh, fur color, varieties, anything like that. So I get as much reality into my shapeshifters as I can um, before I do the fantastical to them. And I also do as much uh, folklore and mythology research on um, each shapeshifter's culture. Like my, the werewolves are the Lakoi from Greek mythology for uh, the king that was uh, changed to a werewolf uh, for seven years for, you know, uh, angering the Greek gods. They, and the Ulfric is a word I created. I went to look at uh, uh, etymology of words. So it's Ulf, which is wolf, and Rick, which is King Ulfric. Um, Lupa comes uh, from um, 
Latin for, uh, you know, wolf. So I do my research not just on the animals, but on the words, the vocabulary. And take all that and then just mix it all together. And, and here's the interesting thing. The thing I do seem to do different than most people that write horror is that I don't set out and think I'm going to create a shapeshifter character. I, you know, uh, Micah Callahan, uh, Nathaniel Grayson, they're were leopards, but I don't think of them as were leopards first. I think of them as Nathaniel Grayson and Micah Callahan first. Hmm. They happen to be were leopards, but that's not the primary. That's not. That's not all of them. I think sometimes um, people create wanted to create a were animal of some kind or a vampire. And I write vampire characters, but Jean-Claude is Jean-Claude first and a vampire second. The fact that he's immortal and that he has to drink blood and can't be out during the day, those are part of his character. And that happens because he's a vampire, but he's still a person to me first, not mm. a vampire. So, yeah, you're not just reducing them to these caricatures of these, you know, creatures from, from you know whatever other ways that you see these stories. You, you really have to, I think that if you're creating a character, it doesn't matter what it is, it always shows. So people first, and then whatever supernatural element is second, even though the supernatural shapes their character. Absolutely, yeah, and, and I think that, you know, even, you know, like looking at something like uh, werewolves, yeah, I, I would say, you know, looking at you know, any of the successful, like, werewolf films, you know, they are characters first and then werewolves second versus, you know, oh, it's a monster that's just, you know, ravaging a town. Oh, and it happens to maybe be a character that we're supposed to care about. That, that, like, it, it always feels shoot shoot in for, yeah. for like, the, the, the lame werewolf stories. But the good ones, like, uh, what comes to mind for me is Ginger Snaps. Mm-hmm. The, the character is you know, this very developed, uh, you know, teenage girl first who has, you know, all of these problems and stuff, and then she becomes a werewolf, and, and it becomes a much more dynamic story. Going all the way back to Lon Chaney Jr. and the Wolfman, hmm. um, you feel his horror at what's become of him, what's happening to him. You feel that he does not want to be the monster, and that he's afraid of the whole process and afraid of himself. That That is, I think, yeah, what, what makes the, the big difference between the ones that that have the lasting power the stories that actually you know we care about over any of the you know well you know it's just a it's a b werewolf movie no one cares <laughs> uh, well i i think it comes back to what we were talking about earlier about real horror being what you know people are capable of take any monster out there we have those tendencies inside us all <laughs> you know being a werewolf sometimes isn't always about turning into a wolf but kind of tapping into that primal rage sometimes and well, these stories exist you know so for so long having a, a conceptualized human to relate to in a horror film is really powerful and evocative one of the interesting things in researching werewolves uh, is that in if you go back to the early court cases 1700s and earlier if you read the crimes if the crime was so horrendous they didn't think a person would do it they just put him on trial and executed him as a werewolf. werewolf? Yeah, yeah, exactly. What, one thing, uh, 
kind of kind of moving on to another thing that I, I was really impressed with, you know, looking at with, sorry, looking at the Anita Blake series, is how you do ground it in reality as well. That you're not trying to make this, oh well, this is a a character who who knows that there's a secret world within our world or something like that. Like those always feel so false to me when when it comes mm-hmm. to urban fantasy. Um, I like that you know. From the very beginning, you know, with book one, vampirism has just become legal through a Supreme Court case. Mm-hmm. Like, that kind of thing is much more interesting, you know, that, that people know about these things, that it, it becomes part of the world. So so kind of like, what went into kind of like how you created the the sort of the, the world that, you know, you introduced all the way back in, in 1993... You know, for for kind of what made your series stand out? Well, one of the things, well, back in 1993, there was almost, this was it. Mm. Um, I kind of chopped my way through the brush for everybody that would come behind. But um, I had a lot of rejections, actually, of the Anita Bielik series because my vampires were out of the closet, out of the casket, so to speak, um, Mm. because nobody had seen that done before. Everybody else, it was all secret behind, you know, an other world living next to ours. The fact that I open with the, you know, four years after Addison v. Clark uh, makes vampires legal citizens. They're still fighting because they have pay taxes without representation. They still don't have the vote. Um, and the fact that the police have to deal with it and vampires are too dangerous to be held in jail, like in, on trial, like normal people. Uh, so you have vampire executioners with warrants of execution. I had a lot of, lot of. I had over 200 rejections with the first uh, novel, Guilty Pleasures, because people just didn't know what to do with it. To me, it was more interesting because I just said, okay, literally, wake up tomorrow, everything goes bump the night is real, now we have to deal with it. I love, one of my favorite things to do is to take horror, like you see a zombie shambling up your street in Anita's world, you can call the cops and they won't think you're crazy. They will, they will just make the appropriate phone call and have somebody come and use a flamethrower on it if they cannot find where it came from and who raised it. So for me, it made sense that 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 level of reality, that I was going to ask people to believe fantastical things, but I was going to ground it in that much reality, I think that really helps people believe and let go and believe the horror or the whatever you're asking them to believe, the more real it is. So I'm uh, currently reading book one because, uh, you know, to, to help prepare for the episode, and I unfortunately didn't finish before we uh, started uh, recording today, but uh, I'm, I'm about halfway through, and, and that was the thing that definitely struck me was how the the world does feel a lot more grounded than a lot of these other urban fantasies that I've you know picked up and ultimately kind of later put down because yeah that that always irked me when when it felt so disconnected from reality. This this definitely felt much more real. It definitely feels like there are uh, much more real stakes because. There is, you know, danger, and and the world is willing to acknowledge the danger and and kind of interesting legal complexity around that. I I like that because it isn't the same thing I've read eight hundred times. Well, thank you. Um, you know, Anita Blake is hard boiled detective fiction. That's that's mm. really what she is. She's film noir with the supernatural is is a given, and I. 
I hadn't seen it done before either, and it interested me enough to to write a whole book and then more books because it's just I, I keep finding new ways to put it together, and I just never lose interest in put in the combination of the reality slightly skewed. Along those lines, then tell us a little bit about Smolder Book Twenty Nine that is uh, dropping soon. Uh, well, it's actually on the shelves. Oh, it's actually on the shelves. Just dropped. Um, my bad. <laughs> well, you know, uh, because my first series didn't get off the ground because it didn't sell enough, the fact that I am still, that 29 is out, I'm, I'm pretty stoked. And it's also the 30th anniversary year, and later this year, the 30th book. So I will have delivered 30 books in 30 years. I'm so thrilled. I, I, I really worked my tail off to make sure that the 30th, that the 29th and 30th book would come out in the 30th year. Um, Smolder. Okay. Smolder is, things have changed so much uh, from guilty pleasures to here. And um, I but wanted to make sure that we had some of the touchstones and got back to. So guilty pleasures is the name of the club that Jean-Claude manages in the first book. In Smolder, we get to see them go back and try to have a date night. And because it's, because it's fiction and nobody wants to see a happy ending, something goes horribly wrong. And, um, but we try to have a date night and have him on stage again for the first time in a very long time. It's a book about power. That's really what it is. It's a book about power and about how no matter how powerful you are or how powerful you think you are, there is always a bigger shark out there waiting in the water to come and eat you. And you, you never get to that point of comfort, especially when you have elements of horror. You can never let, no matter how powerful the character of Jean-Claude has grown, he's, uh, at the beginning of the series, he is a lackey for the current master of the city. Then he becomes the master of the city, and now he's about to be, and this is a spoiler, I, I, at 29 books in, it's a little hard to avoid them. Yeah. Uh, he has been, he's been made the first king of all the vampires of America. And that's never happened before. Nobody's ever been in charge of the whole country. And so that's, that's very impressive. And we're going to find in this book that there are bigger fish out there. You only think you're impressive until a bigger shark comes. Hmm. And watching him deal with that and deal with how everybody he's supposed to be protecting. And at this point, he's supposed to be protecting all the vampires in the country. And if anybody got control of that and they weren't a good person, that could go horribly wrong for everybody in the country. And they are all working towards, they're working towards a wedding. They're actually engaged at this point. And so it's the power dynamics of, of the differences between men and women when it comes to how we're doing the wedding, how we're doing everything like that. And, uh, but Anita is the man in this position. She's the yes dear. Jean-Claude actually, because he's king, it has to be a big wedding. Like, I've actually been researching royal weddings. Ever, I, I never thought I'd have to research this. But it has to be spectacular. And she is overwhelmed by the process, and he's not. So they're, they're couple dynamics. It's about couple dynamics and vampire politics. And she, we finally get to see some of her family on stage a little. And... And the and just how the 
how this world has grown and changed, how these characters have grown and changed, and how every time you think you're safe, you're not. Because, of course, though it is a mystery, hard-boiled detective, and you solve the mystery, you solve the, and you, the bad guy gets his comeuppance, it's also a horror series, so you can never truly rely that you're safe. Well, that sounds uh, like a lot of fun. I, I uh, hope it's it's already kicking butt uh, in in sales, and uh, hopefully continues to to do that because that oh. sounds like a blast, and and sounds like maybe setting up for for book thirty. So, when when in the year is book thirty coming out? Uh, November seventh. November. Okay. I, I'm sure you know we're we're definitely going to have some some hopefully new listeners uh, with with you being on the the show. So, uh, you know. Anyone who is already a fan, um, definitely look forward to that date. And if you haven't picked up Smolder already, pick that up uh, immediately at your local bookstore. Uh, it, it, okay, it's currently number 10 on the New York Times list. So, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, that, the, then, you're, then you're kind of uh, kicking butt, taking names, you know, as, <laughs> as, as, as you are wont to do. I, I don't know why. I, I, I was taught as a child not to be too proud of myself and my accomplishments. And I still to this day struggle to, as my grandmother used to say, toot my own horn too loudly. <laughs> well, uh, I'll, I'll do that for you. Uh, she's kicking butt. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Should we shift over to the movie that uh, we watched in uh, preparation for this episode? Yeah. All right, so we are going to be talking about Vampire Circus. Fifteen years ago, we thought we'd killed a demon. But he's been waiting to kill us. Fifteen years, cousin Metalos. But now we are here to free you. To give you life. But must they all die? All! Film made in 1972, directed by Robert Young, written by Judd Kinberg, George Baxt, and Wilbur Stark. And have to say, to my great eternal shame, I think this actually might be the first Hammer film I've seen, which is weird since I have a horror podcast. <laughs> how 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 have you never seen a Hammer film before? I, I you know, I I I have been just racking my brain trying to figure out how I haven't and. I mean, I've seen, like, lots of clips and stuff. You know, I've seen, you know, <laughs> bits of, of, you know, Christopher Lee destroying it as Dracula, but I've never, ever really, like, watched one, I think, start to end. And uh, this was a lot of fun for <laughs> introducing Hammer Horror to me, so. <laughs> if I'd known you'd never seen a Hammer film, I might have chosen differently. Well, <laughs> you know, it's, it's fine, because I had a great time. Okay, good. <laughs> Vampire Circus. Would would you mind giving us a quick plot summary since this is the one that you uh, brought to the table? Um, 
I can do a quick plot summary. Uh, help me be quick, though, because I'm, I'm usually not. Uh, okay. I'm a novelist, not a poet. Um, <laughs> uh, you have. Uh, you start off. You start off. I start to say with a bang. I'll just go ahead and say that. <laughs> you, because it's a double entendre. Yes, it is. Uh, you have a, you see the young girl you know, skipping through the forest, and you have a woman luring her away. A man you think is her father, but isn't. He is reading. He sees her being lured away. He chases after her, they, and the woman takes the child into the castle where the doors close, and, um, and of course, takes her to be the food of the vampire, uh, the count that, uh, that is inside. And, and I for... And you then have the villagers come, and they 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 destroy and they kill the vampire. They destroy the castle, or think they do. They do a terrible job of destroying it, by the way. Mm-hmm. And then you have many years later, you have a circus, a circus of nights that comes to town, a thousand delights, and it is uh, in the middle of a plague of all things. There's a plague that no one can explain. And the borders have been closed. Their guards will shoot you if you come in or out. And, but the circus has gotten through. And nobody questions that. Nobody questions that. And it is, uh, there's some very sensual acts in the circus, uh, especially for, you know, 1972. And um, it's, it's obviously sinister. And the idea is that the, the people in the village are so desperate for fun and something light that uh, they don't question it. And uh, I, love, I love the circus, I love the animals. The, there's a real panther, there's not special effects, on a leash being led back and forth around people. Of course, it, of course it is, the vampires come back to resurrect the Count from his near death uh, with a stake through his heart, and they will kill, you know, he's cursed them with his dying breath, so they come back to kill the villagers who helped kill him, all their children, and bring him back to life. And um, it is a good story in there. It is, it is, I saw this movie when I was first seven years old. I was allowed to stay up late for uh, the old creature feature called uh, in Indianapolis, uh, hosted by Sammy Terry, who, uh, if you're not familiar with it, did skeleton makeup, and um, it's played very campy. But I saw this and was allowed to stay up and watch it at seven. And at seven, this was a great movie. At barred none. I, I loved this movie when I was seven. And I would not see it again until I was in my, uh, in my 20s and had, had already written Anita Blake, had already established Jean-Claude as a character. And um, let me just say that I, when I saw it after that, I had not seen it from seven to then. Let's just say that this movie really impacted me as a writer for this series because you have the Count is a black-haired vampire, handsome, with a frilly white shirt, and definitely how I dressed Jean-Claude in the first, in in my books. And also the wonderful line from the first one where uh, he kills the poor little girl, sucks her blood, and... The woman who lured him is his lover, and he, he says, one lust feeds the other. I swear, when I was seven, I didn't know there was nudity in this movie. I don't remember the nudity. When I saw I mean, it they, again, 
they they had to have censored that for uh you know for tv, TV. yeah I, I was i was kind of shocked for a movie set in the 70s i was like oh wow they, and it's they're... rated pg <laughs> there is so much nudity in this movie yes. and it had to be cut for but I got the movie as a video years later. I wanted to watch it with my daughter. And remember, it was either cut for TV or I was so young at seven that I didn't remember it. And we're sitting down with popcorn. We're going to watch the movie. First scene comes on and it's like, what, five minutes in? And you've got clothes flying everywhere. And, and I'm just going, well, we won't be watching that. <laughs> uh, you know, but uh, you have the... Uh, so I've given... I, I've given the bear plot. You have the vampires coming back to raise the count again, and uh, you have them dropping like flies, and it takes them a tremendously long time to figure out that it has to be the circus. But one of the things I really like about this movie is that it shows the villagers as monsters too. Mm-hmm. When they uh, when they beat the 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 dwarf, he hasn't done anything to them that they know of. And they don't pick on they don't pick on anybody that can fight back, and so everybody gets to be a villain in this one as well as a victim. Yeah, I I I, I like that that right off the uh, right for, right from the beginning. You know, we, like you know, of course we're we're cheering for the villagers right at the beginning as they you know burst into the castle, and you know they uh, are getting their throats cut left and right by this. Uh, by the count as, as he's you know taking them all on and then they finally manage to get a stake in him and you know we have all of the the very 1970s intensely long fangs that are, <laughs> oh my god yeah they have to like tip their head back to be able to bite anybody because it's just so enormous of, of these fangs um and and this bright red blood and all of that but like it it really does start with with quite the the bang uh you know the and and i i love that you know that like like you mentioned when you were summarizing it, you know, right at, at the beginning, we think that this man who was you know reading in the woods is is freaking out because his daughter has been led away. But no, no, it was his wife. Yes, uh, is is the vampire's lover and has been leading these children away. And this is finally him catching her in the act, and he tries to stop her, but you know, is she's locked the the door to the castle. Like that, that's a fun twist right off the. Uh, yeah, right from the beginning, and and then you know having all of the, you know, villagers burst in and kill the vampire, and him cursing them and swearing that they'll you know suffer and their children will all die and all of that. Great dramatic, you know, he's chewing up the scenery. It's great, mm-hmm. um, and and so I I love that that is how we begin, and then and then we have this you know other really cool set piece introduced. Jumping forward, oh hey, now they all have kids. It's been fifteen years or whatever, and now there's a big circus, and it's the only yeah respite uh, for for these people during the middle of a plague. And and anyone who does talk about the cause of the plague is blaming the vampire. Mm-hmm. Um, I just love how there's this like really strong through thread, and and but but it, you're right. Like there there are some like kind of hilariously obvious disconnects because they're like. This curse is because, or you know, this plague is because of the vampire, and yet they don't question everyone disappearing in town as soon as the circus shows up. I would learn years later when I uh, researched it that one of the reasons that the story has such an abrupt end 
and seems a little dis more disconnected than you expect, is that the um, director had never directed for Hammer films and didn't realize how time sensitive and budget limited they were. Mm -hmm. And so literally he, he had done the movie up to a certain point, then they gave it to somebody else to edit together and make an ending. That, that is part of why it, it is more disconnected uh, in some places than it could be because it was given to somebody else to finish. Well, that does make a lot of sense because I, I did feel like, for the most part, all of the pieces were there, but some of them jumped uh, kind of with weird lack of connective tissue. Um, yes, and as, but, you know, as a child, this was great. Um, and uh, the panther, I love the Black Panther, and um, I have a character later in the series, uh, the Anita Blake series, in called Gabriel. And oh my God, when you, if you get to the point where you're reading Gabriel's description, the guy who turns into a panther because Gabriel's a were panther, they look not dissimilar from each other. Hmm. It is, it is, it is. It was amazing to me how deep this movie sank into the seven-year-old subconscious to then later surface in my 20s as, as my art. I, I, I'd be a different writer without this movie. It's one of the reasons I chose it. Well, we're, we're glad you did because it's, it's fun to see, yeah, like, like what, uh, what sinks in and, and kind of... Uh, you know, you're like, oh, I, I guess I am standing on the shoulders of this particular un unusual giant, but sure. <laughs> right. But yeah, like I, I, I loved that this movie really did some unusual things with some of the vampire stuff. You know that that we have vampires or maybe other monsters with some of the people in the circus. Yes. You know, so, some of them are vampires that are turning into these different animals. Some of them seem to be other creatures that are turning into animals it's kind of unclear sometimes but that that it does kind of get blurred and it's not just a vampire movie right yeah because is it a shapeshifter movie because really the especially the panther seems much more like a were leopard than mm -hmm. than a vampire though he is a vampire he's both in this movie because he certainly has the very big 70s fangs and um seduces the the mayor's daughter and uh so he's seductive. He's got the vampire seduction going on, but but he's also turns into a panther. Which back in the seventies, uh, you still as a were animal, you didn't get the sex appeal that a vampire did. Hmm. So this is one of the few movies where I saw somebody be able to do both. Well, and in vampire lore too, I think it's important to remember they they were able to kind of transform into animals. There wasn't this kind of strict distinction between, you know, vampires are bats and where creatures are their own specific creatures. Um, there, a lot of powers of a vampire were animal transformation. So I thought that was kind of cool to go back to those original roots of vampirism. I like that a lot too. Um, and also, um, original lore was that a, if you were a werewolf in life, when you died, if you when you died and were buried, you could rise again as a vampire. Yeah, the 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 line between these monsters was always very uh, hazy at best, and you know even kind of the sort of proto vampire for for most of our modern stuff. You know, Dracula, he summons wolves, he turns into smoke, he turns into a you know bat he lizard crawls up walls he does all sorts of cool stuff that we kind of see in this film and and you know that 
a lot of those powers kind of do kind of get lost over the ages and kind of get distilled down, and so it's fun to see all of them on display here. Yeah, but vampire bats, actually, bats weren't normally associated with vampires. It was only after they discovered vampire bats in uh, the New World in South America that tales of vampire bats came back to Europe. And so uh, I think, I'm not 100% sure, but I think that Dracula was one of the first pieces of fiction to associate vampires with bats. That, that, that's my understanding as well. Speaking of the panther, going back, back to him, the uh, forest scene where he like is in panther mode and just like wrecks a whole family. Yeah, very fun. It was very fun because some of the special effects were not the best. Yes, but it still managed to be surprisingly spooky, regardless of how much I was laughing at the special effects. It really see, was. The, the moment I really appreciated was uh, I can't remember her name. Was it Ella? Emma? The um. Ellen. <laughs> anyway, the Ella. daughter of Anna and the school schoolmaster. Schoolmaster yeah. guy. <clears throat> uh, regardless, the female protagonist <laughs> uh, kind of got just really late. Kind of got yes. stuck in the woods, and there's this scene where she's looking off in the distance, and you see these this pair of glowing eyes, and you're kind of assuming it's either one of the vampires or perhaps the panther. Yes. You're not sure, and it slowly approaches. And I kind of realized in that moment, wow, maybe I'm afraid of glowing eyes in the distance. Because <laughs> in 1972, this is creeping me out. It really was. Only to find out it was a pair of boots. And I just thought that was such a clever way to kind of trick the audience into thinking uh, something is not what it seems. Which is the whole thing about vampires, right? It, and, yes, yes. And, and the fact that she had to, she found the, the bodies that had been eviscerated horribly, and she had to hide from the, the men that were guarding for the plague victims not to be able to cross and would have shot her. And she had to hide among the bodies, uh, which is, and not scream. And then to cap it off with, with the boots approaching that looked like the eyes. Oh, that, and that you was, think you think she's going to die right there. Yeah, yeah 100%. 100%. It was great. Yeah, that was probably the coolest scene of the whole movie, honestly. That was the mo- maybe the best directing and misdirecting at the same time. Mm. But I, I, you know, from, from the age of seven to now, I, I'm sorry. I, I, there are other scenes that I would, I would go, no. But that was the most evocative, yes. Well, what, what are some of the other scenes that you really liked? If you put... An animal that is beautiful and can eat me in the film, like the Black Panther, I'm there. I'm good right there. And I always have been um, attracted to anything that was dangerous, uh, like a predatory animal. I, as I said earlier, I have a biology degree. If I ever die, it will be because I got a chance to pet something I shouldn't have. Mm. Um, so for me, anytime the Panther was on, that was what I was watching. I loved the acrobats turning back flawlessly between the bats. You know, they turned to the bats, they turned to the acrobats, and that was, I don't know, that was very smooth, graceful, very sensual. I've got, uh, a, I've got to bring up two kind of the sensual dance where we saw quite a bit of nudity between one of the acrobats and the snake lady, I'm not quite or sure. Or tiger lady. She was supposed yeah. to be a tiger. <clears throat> and just how kind of sensual it was for the 70s i was I really 
kind of blown away but also titillated and like i this is awesome it Uh, is it is it is is probably the most sexual thing almost it's more sexual than the actual sex scenes because they were you know shot so things didn't show much yeah and agreed i i was i don't yeah i was a little shocked by that scene every time you see it you go really this got past the censors Right? Like, you see full frontal, like, women genitals. Yes. I, I was like, oh my god, what is happening? It's as if body paint was enough. <laughs> yeah, almost. I, I kind of thought about that. But then they shied away from a lot of the gore and the violence at times, and it was kind of this weird disconnect of who, well, who was in charge of the editing? Well, they didn't have the special effects back in the 70s True. to really realistic violence. That's true. Um, so, uh, so they went for the sensual card instead in this one. Yeah, it was great. I, I really, I don't know. Sometimes I think we are raised in, you know, such kind of a, you know, Judeo-Christian morality system that we forget that sex existed in the seventies as well. And <laughs> that people wanted this just as much as we wanted it today. And to see it in film that old to me really, I don't know, it, it's I, I would it say that this emotions. This, this is probably of this of the Hammer films. This is probably one of the most sensual. Uh, it has the most uh, overall sexuality, erotica, erotic edge to it. Um, there is there is scattered throughout the Hammer films, uh, the vampire films, uh, this kind of sensuality and 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 some sexual innuendo and stuff. But this one probably has the most of any of the ones that I remember uh, really well. Um, and um, uh, Christopher Lee's Dracula was is amazing and always will be, but you always got the feeling that Dracula, his Dracula was more likely to kill you than seduce you. He mm-hmm. did both, but he was always so menacing. And the vampires here in this one and the, the were animals and the back and forth, it's very, very sensual. Well, I think that goes back again to a lot of the lore of vampires in that they are very similar to succubi or incubi. That's where their sex comes from, right? They are seducing creatures, and I think this film really put that in the front. It started with a bang, as we've said a few times. Yes! Um, And it, it really held on to this idea that vampirism is sexual in nature, but it's also primal, it's also carnal. And where is that line? Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed that. I thought it was shocking almost to see a film this age kind of go that far and cross over that line. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, but I think literally, literally, I think for whatever reason, you never know as a child, as a, as a creative, you never know what's going to impact you. And, um, I don't know the fact that that this movie came out so clearly in characters that I would later create and the sensuality uh, in my books that would come out later. You know, you can't you can't pick and choose what will inspire you. Uh, your subconscious, your muse does that. And um, I think the fact that this has such a sensual edge to it throughout actually deeply impacted me as a child. I really like that that it does play that kind of front and center because, you know, all of the universal vampire films, like, you know, oh, like, maybe they're, they're you know, 
attractive vampires, but you know that but they you know kind of were focusing on the monstrous and and like you said with Lee uh, as Dracula, yeah, he was kind of more menacing. This is you know definitely playing the sensuality front and center, which I mean has been so tied to a lot of the literature, right? Like, you know, Carmilla before Dracula was a very sensual book. Um, You know, Dracula was very sensual, much more than, you know, pretty much uh, most of the film adaptations of it. Uh, I I will put forward, though, for sensuality, the uh, Frank Langella Dracula. If you haven't seen Frank Langella uh, as Dracula... um, I'm going to blank on what year it comes out, but um, it, I was driving by that time, so I was at least 16 when it came out, and um, it was very sensual. He was a, a much more sensual, romantic figure uh, of Dracula. It was probably the most uh, romantic version of Dracula that I can remember seeing, other than uh, of Dracula itself, yeah. And it looks like that one came out in 79. So, uh, you know, a good, what, seven years after this film? So Yeah. Now, it doesn't have the sensuality. The, the, it doesn't make you sit there and go, how did this get past the censors? But, but, but Frank Langella's portrayal of Dracula is, is very romantic. And mm. it's obvious that he's, he's there more to seduce uh, Minna and not... not and, and the fact that he harms people as part of his arrogance is, is, a, is a nobility, but he's really a romantic figure, and he plays it that way. It's much softer portrayal than Christopher Lee's. I will definitely have to watch that one. All right, uh, let's talk about a few other things that we liked about this film. Um, our, our show notes, we, we indicated a couple of actors that we were excited to see about it. I was super nerding out once I realized that the strong man in this is David Browse, <laughs> who, you know, went on to be Darth freaking Vader. Yeah. Uh, and for me, it was uh, Layla. Layla. Am I pronouncing that? Laylu? Laylu. Laylu? Uh, Ward, who was classic Doctor Who. She was Romana. And this was her first role in film. She was one of the acrobat, the, the twin vampires. Oh, she looked familiar. I was trying to place her. Classic Doctor Who. Okay, uh, that's where I've seen her. I've tried the Doctor Who thing multiple times and just can't get into it. But I recognized her from somewhere. We will. I will not hold it against you. Okay, thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Because people have. <laughs> no, everybody. Everybody has their. Everybody has their fandoms and their interests. They're so you know and. Uh, uh, as long as we mutually respect each other's fandoms, then yes. that's okay. I love that. Yeah. Should we maybe shift into a few of the things that we thought maybe we, we didn't love or disagreed with or perhaps didn't like? Um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to start? <laughs> well, I, um, I, 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 you, you go first. I'll jump in. Um, I I know Nathaniel wrote down that I feel I felt like at times I wasn't sure what time period we were set in Uh, there wasn't necessarily a a defined kind of worldly context Uh, you can kind of piece it together I think it's it's not that difficult but at times I thought well are we in the industrial age do they have guns what's going on here 
Uh, it just felt a little ambiguous as to what time frame it was at. And as I say that out loud, I wonder if that was intentional. In well, that kind of the story of the vampire is immortal and it doesn't really matter. It's the threat of the vampire less than the time frame. The... I'm going to go with that's the costumes that they had and the sets that they had <laughs> yeah. on their budget. Okay, okay, fair. I, I got a little poetic there, I think. I, I am absolutely <laughs> going to vote that. But um, I thought at the beginning it seems more medieval with the castle and, and everything. But then the costuming, I agree, that's what they had. But um, it was actually, this is actually one of the few vampire films that doesn't seem to be going for either Dracula, if it's not Dracula, it's medieval. It, it seems to be the cost, it seems to be long, long ago. This actually seemed to be closer to modern era than most of them. Yeah, like maybe late 1700s or something. I mean, they did have the, you know, people shooting guns at them as they uh, were getting close. Actually, uh, probably later than that because. Later than that. Because the later guns than that. were much more accurate than the late 1700s guns were. Um, I. I would say probably uh, late, mid to late 1800s, supposedly. Maybe yeah. even early 1900s, but the costuming really wasn't there. But, uh, but then, this was vaguely European. So, <laughs> costuming changes depending on what country you're in, too. And, I, I mean, it could have been 19th century, but in more of a Puritan demographic, right? Like... This is where I think it's kind of hard to be like, oh, that's actually Victorian. It shouldn't be in this movie at all. Um, none of us are, are fashionistas, perhaps. Uh, uh, I have but... taken a uh, costume design class in college, and I can say there was like at least six or seven time periods represented. Oh, oh yes. Uh, the, it, it, it... I agree that it was just the costumes they had, lowest budget. Sure. For, for most of it, except except then for some of the um, some of the costumes of the main characters, especially the vampires, seemed and the circus performers seemed to be more purposeful to stick to the same century or yeah. time period. Um, I just have to say, as a proud gay man, I loved all of the vampires and their frilly shirts and their ascots <laughs> and the fashion that they rocked. It was it was glorious. You were taking notes. Uh, I was. I need. Yeah. I need an ascot now. I think. Well, well, is a uh, is is a is a bisexual woman. I approved of everything as well. <laughs> uh, it was great. I, I I don't know. There's some charm and some magic to the costuming back then, right? And that's of course probably because we didn't live back then. But it, it's just always fun to see and imagine. I think I think one of the things that makes the vampire in these kinds of movies it is the costume that seems out so it's not modern. I think uh, Christopher Lee's the later movies they put him up closer to the the present, and it was kind of jarring for me to see uh, all people everybody dressed like modern or at least the seventies. In uh, what Dracula AD nineteen seventy two or whatever they called it. I can't remember what they called it on the number, but yeah, something like it. it I found it jarring. Yeah, it it does feel kind of wrong to put it in that period. At least, at least with you know Dracula. Did find one thing very funny: how how many of the men had very deep plunging necklines to make it really really easy to stab them right in the heart with <laughs> a stake. It seemed to be like creating a target, I... and yet. 
it seemed I did like their not... hearts were in their upper stomach based on where they would actually stick the stakes. You know, Nathaniel, I did not mind below V-cut shirts on the vampire men at all. <laughs> I thought it was kind of nice that the men were showing more chest than the women. At least, yeah. some, at, at least some of the time. There was a lot of nudity, with female nudity in this movie. And every time I don't watch it for a few years, I forget how much female nudity is in this movie. I want to say they went balls to the wall, but I don't think that is appropriate. <laughs> that, is, that, is not, that is not appropriate in this. It would be more, you know, uh, ovaries to the wall, but that just doesn't sound right. Yeah, it does not. Uh, I, but um, the violence is is... The violence looks fake in the 70s films, and um, I know that that, and that wasn't just the British censors, though. It was also that, uh, we mentioned it earlier, that they just didn't have the special effects for it, but I think that that's one of the reasons that these kinds of movies are, well, not this movie, the sexual content, but uh, this is not a kid's movie, <laughs> but <laughs> no. for the rest of the Christopher Lee Dracula movies, the, the blood looks fake. It, even when the stakes go through, it doesn't look real. So it's almost um, almost safe violence. That's a phrase. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it looked like red paint, right? And not mm -hmm. like deep blood-looking paint. It was just, we have an extra can of red paint that we decorated the circus trailer with, and we're going to use that. Um, and it, I think that's fine. It kind of adds a level of camp to the movie. But I do agree with you about it kind of tones down the violence some. You see that splattering out of a vampire and you think, oh, okay, this is fake. You know? uh, and, and I, I think that if I, had been, uh, if I had been a child in the same era as uh, just, just 10 years later, that the level of violence would have been too realistic and might have been much more disturbing. Yeah, you know, a lot of the films, yeah, right on its on its tail are, are going to be much more uh viscerally upsetting you know i mean what alien came out what seven years after this that yeah. is a whole different ball game i mean that's that's disturbing even even if you've if you, i don't know if you guys ever got to see that in uh aliens in a in a theater with people but i, I have seen alien in a theater and it was a delight because the audience's reaction and reaction to the scares is is part of the fun if you've seen the movie before. Absolutely. The uh, chestburster scene was one of my favorite things to have ever seen, you know, in a theater with, with an audience. And of course, everyone that there had seen it a million times, but we were all just, you know, still screaming and having a great time. It would be interesting to ask people that actually get to see this in a theater, because you know, I was seen at a home on, on a TV. If if people thought this level of horror, if they reacted to it more like we do, the more graphic horror that we have now, the more graphic violence, did people react to the blood as, it, as if it was campy? Or did people see it as, since they hadn't seen more visceral horror on stage or on screen? Did they react to it more like we react to our violence in films now? Well, I'm curious, too, that brings up a really good point about kind of the idea of camp and how do you define camp in a certain age compared to other ages? You just kind of blew my mind here, Laurel. <laughs> like, a, a, a camp to me now is 
it's more than just kind of B-movie fun. It's this idea of what was scary in a time period versus what's scary in modern day and where that intersection lies. Um, and, and we would almost have to interview people who yeah. saw it in the theaters. And, and it wouldn't just stop here. I mean, this is a whole book. This is a whole book thesis. Our, uh, our, our, its own podcast, the idea of our changing views of what is horror, what is violence on screen, and as we push the envelope now, now modern horror, it is, I, I actually asked um, first responders uh, that I'd asked for other things. I, I sometimes will throw in other questions as I come up with them. And I asked them, I said, some of the, the more modern uh, the movies, I said, how real do the injuries look? How real is it? And they said, real enough that some of them can't watch those movies because it triggers them. Mm -hmm. And so, but if you're sitting in this theater watching this in the 70s, would you, would you see that as violence? Would you react to it like it's not camp, but violence? Well, and it's interesting, too, I think, because, you know, when I watched it, a film in the, the 70s, the sex was very, like, jarring to me. Like, oh, wow, they're doing sex stuff in the 70s. How dare they? But the violence was so campy and silly, it didn't phase me at all. And what does that say about kind of our culture now? Is sex still so taboo that even if we have movies like Evil Dead and the strangers that indicate this extreme level of violence that we're so desensitized to violence, but sex is still jarring. I don't know. You it's blew, a, you, you it, blew it, my mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. It's one of my specialties. Um, but uh, Amer I can speak to part of that, and it is American, America's, Americans have a very uh, odd worldview about sex. Um, my books in Italy, touring in Italy, touring in, in France, and the French and the Italians both asked me why I didn't have sex on stage earlier in my, in my books. I had sensuality, but not actual sex. That, that Anita was not a modern woman, they said in Rome, one of the reporters, because she waited so long to have sex on, on stage in the books. And here in America, um, I was getting in trouble with just too much sensuality even before we actually crossed that great divide to actual, you know, consummated uh, sex. Uh, so it's an American attitude that we're okay here with violence that bothers. It's the violence in my books that bo bothered my European readers more. Well, um, you and I will be developing a master thesis after this with our biology <laughs> degrees about yes. the, the theory of camp and how it pertains to modern age. <laughs> a very biological uh, discussion. And, and, and does it say, what does it, we have two theses now, and what does it say, what does it say about America that we are so okay with violence, but sex still startles us? Yeah, yeah, you've really kind of put a lot in my brain to think about. It's the best kind of interviews we have on this podcast, thank you very much. You're very welcome, uh, you know, uh, deep thoughts lead to good places. Well, sorry, Nathaniel, we just went on a tangent there. Uh, do you want to pull us back into what we didn't like about this film? Um, well, I, I just will mention one thing that I thought was like a really weird choice in the movie. So, you know, one of the, the big leaders of the uh, circus is this 
quote, gypsy woman, obviously that's maybe not the most uh, PC term anymore, turns out that she is Anna, the, you know, uh, vampire's lover from the beginning who, who manages to escape getting killed in the destruction of the castle. And so they just, like, have her, like, physically transform back into her when the obvious choice is just to be like, oh, yeah, she was the, you know, uh, body paint dancer. Um, I don't know, like, I was pretty sure that was going to be the reveal, and then it wasn't, and then they just like, oh, she transformed back to how she looked before, and it was just, just a really weird choice. I actually thought, I actually thought that she was just Anna, but older, and then they have her absolutely transform at the end, so that it's like a, it's like almost a shapeshift, like the, like the animals shapeshifting into bats or are shapeshifting into were leopards, and I guess if you can shapeshift into a whole animal from a person to an animal back and forth, that the idea that you could change your physical appearance just as a person shouldn't be that big a stretch, but it did seem like a weird choice. Especially because I'm pretty sure she was the one who did the dancing as the body paint dancer lady. I don't know. That I don't know. I yeah, didn't. I, I didn't I, look at the credits for that. Yeah, I'm not seeing anyone else listed on IMDb, but yeah, I I think it was the same, and so it's just like it almost seemed like they had two of her at the same time on the screen at one part. You know, as she's watching the dance go on with all of the crowd, and I don't know, it just got kind of weirdly convoluted well, for no reason. We never really see the. Uh, we never. It's true. We never see the tiger dancer uh, out of her makeup. I yeah. don't think. Yeah, and so it just seemed like the obvious choice that they just kind of instead went with a bad transition effect instead. Speaking of effects, the gore effects were a really weirdly mixed bag. You know, we, we mentioned the blood, but like, you know, they have someone get burned alive. They have people yeah. torn apart by animals. And like, while it's happening, it looks pretty campy. But then like af after the fact, like some of those effects actually looked kind of cool. And so I just thought it was weird that it was such a weirdly inconsistent thing, you know, that we have, you know, uh, someone burned alive who looks kind of grody. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, we have these kind of cool, you know, torn apart people look actually half decent for the most part. But then, you know, we, we have it just, you know, in, in stark uh, contrast to these bright red bursts of or bursts of of blood and all of that it just it felt like maybe they had two different special effects teams going on at, at the same time well i i don't know about that but i know that the budget considerations were very help make this movie what it is hmm. so it may just be that they didn't have the money they had they had the money to do eviscerated people killed in the forest pretty well, more scary, but maybe they didn't have the budget to do the other as well. Um, I'm not sure on that. But um, as somebody who watched a lot of horror movies in the 70s, um, they, a lot of them all had this bright red blood just kind of thrown on. That was actually pretty common. Yeah, it definitely is, has been something I've seen, and it always does throw me off. It's just like, oh, that's very... Technicolor blood, but you know, like it, it is definitely a you know thing that you just kind of have to uh, accept with with any movie with blood in this in the nineteen seventies, especially. It it was I started to say I don't know late eighties, late eighties, 
or mid-80s when you started to get more realistic blood and gore. Mm -hmm. Truly realistic. That was yeah. the start of it, I think. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit of, of late 70s, again, with, you know, things like Alien or Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But, but yeah, it kind of definitely became more mainstream with, you know, John Carpenter and Wes Craven and all of them, you know, kind of bringing a little bit more of a more realistic edge to uh, the, the horror. Any other uh, stuff that we wanted to bring up as far as things that maybe didn't quite land for us as well? Um, all I want to say is Anton, the main protagonist, the boy of the mayor, was a weak. He drove me nuts. I'm or, sorry. Or the, the, is he the mayor's son? son. Or, or... Oh, was he the mayor? Oh, yeah. The doctor's son. Oh, yeah. Doctor's son. Doctor's son. Yes. Um, yeah. the, the actor who plays Anton also was a, a lot of the actors played with Hammer. They were like studio players. So there's another movie that I am blanking on the title of where he plays, uh, it's a secret reveal, but he's the son of a lady running a girl's school and there's a serial killer there. That is, a, that is actually a, a chilling, a more, there's no, camp, there's no camp that I remember in this movie. It's actually one of the scarier, just pure scary movies for Hammer. There's no vampires in it. It's not a monster movie. It's a serial killer movie. And I'm blanking on the title. But the actor who played Anton is, is in it. And he, um, and he is not a weenie in this one. In that one. <laughs> the house that screamed, maybe? Maybe. We're all on IMBD going, what was that? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, that one actually held up. This one has not aged as well. At seven, when I was seven, it was terrifying. Um, in my 20s, the sexuality was going, well, I didn't remember that. I think it's the house that screamed. Um, yeah, so it's something about a headmistress and a secluded Yes, school, so. that's it. That's it. I recommend watching. I recommend you watch that. Uh, the actor that plays Anton actually does a very good job. of, uh, And it's, it's one of the few ones that I know of for Hammer that doesn't have any mo traditional monsters in it. it it's quite it, it for Hammer especially. It's very evocative, very, very understated in some ways. Hmm. I will definitely check that one out. All right. Well, I think it's time to kind of move into what we would rate the film. So, Laurel, for your kind of guidance here, we like to rate movies based on our screams and our frowns. Screams meaning how scary the movie was on a scale of one to ten. 10 being you'll never sleep ever again, <laughs> 1 being Disney movies are scarier, <laughs> um, and then crowns on the same scale, but 10 being a perfect movie and 1 being, you know, hot garbage. Mm. So for me, as far as screams go, I gave this a 2. It's, you know, for a modern age, it's not very scary. We have things like the Evil Dead sequel coming out in a few weeks. Um, it, it just unfortunately has fallen behind a few of the scary aspects of the world, which is nothing against it. Nathaniel, how about you? I'd give it a three. I, I feel like some of the stuff out in the woods worked for me pretty well, though. Yeah, I mean, you know, I could uh, watch this and definitely roll over and fall asleep uh, without any uh, lost, uh, you know, without any wandering nervous thoughts. I, I'd say a three for me for for as an adult, as a child, this was a much scarier movie. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, 
you go you guys give yours uh on the do you the crowns first uh for you uh well i can i can go first with crowns um i had a lot of fun watching this like yes there are a lot of flaws uh that you know that we've kind of pointed out but as a whole like i had a really fun time watching this movie it had uh, a lot stronger plot than i uh you know ever expected from just the title and uh really enjoyed it so i gave it a seven out of ten um i was a little bit more harsh in my review i gave it a five um i watched it today actually i had a very good time um, I don't know if I had as a good time. I, I did not know about the Darth Vader actor nor the Doctor Who, so maybe I missed out on that aha moment. Um, it's a good movie, uh, and I'll leave it at that, a five. I, I'm going to give it an eight. Part of that's nostalgia for me. Part of that is that, um, you know, it's still an enjoyable movie. It's still you can still sit there and watch it all the way through as many times as I've seen it, and I still enjoy. It. I still pick up different things. Um, I have to say that from the moment I saw it as an adult and having not seen it from seven to to in my twenties, almost thirty, it is cr it is still like I I don't know whether to put my hand up over my eyes and go oh my god I can't believe that this uh, that that this stayed in my head and spilled out on my my series to this degree. It, it certainly had an incredible impact on me as a as a little girl, and uh, so for me, it's it's a, it's an eight, um, and I'm just not gonna. I cannot take away the nostalgia and the uh, uh, the audacity of the sensuality and sexuality in this one. I don't remember any other Hammer film having this level of it. Well, uh, let's move on to how we have all been staying spooky. And I can kind of kick us off. Uh, so the way I've been staying spooky recently is I just reread the book Lovecraft Country by Matt Ruff. I've probably talked about this many times on the podcast before because it's one of my all-time favorite horror novels. But I had to give it a reread because the sequel uh, just barely came out called The Destroyer of Worlds. And I couldn't remember what plot points were from the book uh, versus the TV show. And so I had to reread it so I could actually have a even a, a remote chance of, of remembering what was going on exactly in, in the book before I picked up the sequel. And uh, still, total 10 out of 10 banger. Highly recommend to anyone. For me, I just finished reading Patient Zero by Jonathan Mayberry. It's the first in his Joe Ledger uh, series. And um, I found that he did, he, he does that wonderful thing that I like to do in my own writing, which is you have humor or sarcasm, and then you, the next bit you hit with something horrible and horrifying. So it's a double blow. So he does a really good mix of that. And um, some, of the, uh, some of the horror in this, I don't want to give it away because part of it's a, part of it's, part of the plot is explain, is trying to figure out how it happened or what's happening exactly. And I don't want to give it away. So um, it's a, it, there's some moments that are really terrifying uh, because of the technology used and how close it is to reality. So, uh, so I give this a 10 out of 10 and I've, the highest praise I have, I have the second book in this series waiting for me to read, which is, uh, I think it's the, Dragon Laboratory. Uh, nope, I'm going to mess that up. 
<sighs> should have made a note. But I have the second book in the series. So Patient Zero by Jonathan Mayberry, 10 out of 10. Excellent. And, and I watched, uh, last movie, horror movie I watched was We Have a Ghost. Oh, I've been uh, wanting to watch that one. Yeah, uh, is it good? You'd recommend? It, I would recommend it. Um, it's not... It's not very scary, uh, but it's not meant to be. They've done something very clever, or at least I think it's clever. We talked about camp versus uh, horror earlier. Uh, there is some camp in it, but it's not, it's not accidental, and it's not going for camp. It is, uh, I don't want to give it away because there's some surprises in there. And I, if I finish this explanation, I think it will give something away. And I don't want to, I'd, I'd rather let you guys watch the movie and figure it out. Um, but I would really recommend it. I would say uh, for horror, it's, a, it's, a, it's an 8 to a 9. For emotional depth, it's a 10. For uh, some of the performances, definitely a 10. And... Uh, they did some really clever things with the traditional ghost uh, and modern society and some of the commentary on it. I, so for that, definitely a 10 out of 10. Okay, awesome. Uh, definitely going to have to cue that up, maybe, maybe after this episode is done. Jumping back to Jonathan Mayberry's writing real quick, have you read uh, any of his other stuff? I have. In fact, I was uh, privileged to have him do a short story for the anthology uh, I put together with uh, Will McCaskey, my co-editor, uh, called Fantastic Hope. He did a short story for that. And uh, it, was, it was actually a Joe Ledger short story. And what mm. made me go, well, I have to read all those. I have to read more of that. Awesome. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I've read his uh, Pine Deep trilogy and all three of those are just some of my favorite horror novels of the last decade. So It's on my list, but he may be one of the few writers that's more prolific than I am. I can't keep up. He does churn them out fast. Um, yeah, well, if, if you're going to read anything by him, you know, once you're done with the Joe Ledger books, I think they're actually technically in the same universe. But yeah, the Pine Deep books uh, are so freaking good. Okay. Like... I, I could not get enough. I, I just listened to the audiobooks, and uh, the the reader was excellent, and oh man, they, they are a thrill ride all the way through. So I will add it to my list. As, as you should. It's it's so <laughs> so fun. Um, I'll tell him you said that. He'll lo he'll love it. he'll love knowing that. Well, and and also just you know maybe if to tell him if he ever wants to talk on a podcast, uh, I will talk his ear off. I will absolutely do that. <gasps> Hooray! <laughs> See, I love these connections that we make. We have a new friend. That friend has friends. There we go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, Max, how are you staying creepy <laughs> or spooky? There we go. Spooky. I, I know. I know. The, I know the language of our own podcast. Um, in one regard, I the last horror movie I watched was called Consecration. Um, it was out in theaters. You can just rent it on Amazon now. Uh, it's kind of a, a twist on the nun story, where you mm. have kind of this, this female protagonist who goes to this convent because her brother died there after converting to the religion. And things kind of happen, they go back and forth, and you know the demon is revealed. Um, I'm a sucker for demonology, so I was really into this. Um, and they kind of do a Saint Maud vibe, where the demon isn't actually an a demon it it's more the really 
religiosity of the content that hmm. is the horror. Um, the ending kind of falls apart, but I would definitely recommend if you want kind of a modern horror to to watch. It it was really good. It kept my interest. I have, are you looking forward then to the the Pope's Exorcist? Oh my gosh! Yes. <laughs> If you like demonology, I figured you would be. Uh, yes, if it has demons. The more demons, the better for me. Hmm. Um, the other thing I've been really watching quite avidly, which isn't necessarily horror, but it kind of touches on what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, where real life is horrific enough, is the Amazon show The Boys, which is very kind of tongue-in-cheek, superhero kind of vibe of course but the themes that they are dissecting in that show are incredibly palatable poignant and horrific and there are times where it makes me feel really queasy because they are portraying what is happening in real world and it's just gross to watch um it's an amazing show check it out i will actually say the boys is solidly horror for me Ah. because of the level of violence alone for sure yeah uh, the the opening thing the opening thing i I don't want to give it away because it's such a great shock but the opening where one of the main characters loses his girlfriend and how he loses his girlfriend Mm -hmm. from the moment that happens you know that you are not in the typical superhero universe yeah it is I can't believe I've slept on it for so long. It's three seasons. Um, Nathaniel, you and your wife have to check it out. It is an incredible treaty it, on what's it, happening in the world today. I I actually have not caught up. My husband and I have not caught up on the on the newest season. But one of the things that this the boys did that I'd never seen done before was to really truly explore if you have superheroes in your world. What could truly happen? And, yeah, and, and, and not only that, but put them in capitalistic America, right? And superheroes that are entitled to certain privileges, but let's also use a mega corporation to back them up. And what would happen? And it's crazy! I don't know. I don't think that, that superheroes being treated like that, I don't think that's a capitalist thing. I think that's a... I think that's a anything where you would have something that powerful that could perform for the government. I don't think that's a particular type of government. I think that that would be anywhere. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, I'll give uh, you that. Because, um, oh, I'm forgetting the title. Some, I, and I'm totally blanking, so I probably shouldn't say it, but I'm going to anyway. There was a story where uh, they had, they changed only one thing, that Superman crash-landed not in America, in the heartland in Kansas, but in uh, Russia at the height of the... Yes. I thought that was a chilling and very just fascinating how just where you land in the world on this planet would change things. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I quite enjoy that one as well. And it's really weird cheering for Lex Luthor the whole time as the, like, American it, it patriot is. who is trying to take down Superman. But but it, I just thought it was an incredibly clever uh, take on it. Yeah, I, I, I really, you know, have, have long loved anything with, you know, heroes that, that give us an interesting twist on it. Um, I've read some of the boys. I, I haven't watched the show, but I did read some of the comics. Um, and 
Oof. It it, it it is pretty it is pretty brutal i mean it is brutal um i remember i don't i'm not usually that bothered by gore i mean i don't sit there and go gasp and whatever the boys the very opening of it had several moments in the first few episodes that made us both go yeah you know <laughs> it's just like i can't believe they did that and i can't believe they showed it on screen it reminds me a little bit of watchmen you know, Nathaniel, yeah. if you love The Watchmen so much, it's mm. very much in that same vein. I think in 2023, they can do a little bit more than what they did well, in Watchmen. But yeah, yeah, but Watchmen was a flawed, it had its moments, but it, it was frustrating in some of the things that were missed on the in the movie. Sure, sure. Uh, but the, the boys pulls no punches on the violence That's... at all. So be warned. Be warned, it's great and it's wonderful, but but it is it is shockingly violent. And, and not just the violent, it's pretty sexual too. I mean there were some moments where oh. I was like, oh wow, what are they doing? There are there are some there are some uh sex uh, yeah, that's true. Um I I don't want to give it away. It's a because sh- some of the things some of the things are obvious sexism, and they talk, and it's it's a way of using fantasy to talk about hard sub- subjects. Yes. But I thought, um, nope, I'll give it away because I thought some of the things they did later in the first series were more subtle, and turning it around on the other male superhero in a way that you don't see coming. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't want to say more because I don't want to give it away. <laughs> Nathaniel, go and watch, and we'll do another episode with Laurel about it all. I would be happy to come on and, and discuss the first season. First season. Perfect. I, Perfect. I haven't, haven't gotten, I'm not caught up. <laughs> well, well, now you have homework. Um. <laughs> no, no, no. I have a book to finish edit. I am sitting with the copyrighted manuscript of the November book, Slay, on my desk. I uh, nothing. I don't nothing new till I finish watch that. See, this is the dedication that I need to begin to give to myself. Um. And it is. It is giving it to yourself. That is exactly what it is. You owe yourself so many pages. You owe yourself to write your stories because nobody else will ever write your stories because you are unique. Your viewpoint is unique. How you'll take. Even the, even the most cliche horror idea or, or fantasy idea, your take on it will be unique because, you, because it's you. So you owe it to yourself, absolutely. See, see now, I, now I just, uh, I'm also just uh, being re- uh, renewed in my, my dedication to do that. See, wins all around on this episode. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, I think we've kind of covered all of our major bases here do you want to let people know where they can find you online and maybe re plug uh smolder one more time so people don't forget to go pick up a copy immediately after listening to this episode i appreciate that uh yes uh you can find me online uh at my own website laurel k hamilton uh you know lkh at laurel k hamilton dot laurel k hamilton dot com i'm so sorry um, I am LK Hamilton on Twitter, and I am LKH underscore official on Instagram, and I believe also on Facebook. Um, I'm also on Twitter, and uh, so out there online for everybody to, to ask questions of and contact. And also Smolder, 
The latest Anita Blake novel uh, has come out uh, with uh, vampires and family drama and politics, but of the kinder, gentle vampire politics where, you know, the, it's a threat to the world, but it's more fun and people are dressing better and just having a better time than any news you will be watching anytime soon. I'm sorry, when I really very much, when I write and when you guys read what I write, I want you to be immersed and having a good time and, and maybe leave all the reality away from yourself for a while. I think we all need more of that. So Smolder, and you should be able to pick it up online or bookstores, uh, any of the bookstores around you. All right. Well, I think that wraps things up. So uh, one last thought is just to stay spooky. Need even more Scream Kings? Here's our obligatory shameless social media plug. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Scream Kings Pod. You could also email us at ScreamKingsPodcast at gmail.com. Help us reach a wider audience of horror fans by leaving a review on iTunes or by sharing a link on social media. You can also support the show by going to patreon.com forward slash Scream Kings. Stay spooky.